0: This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years, and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife. Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity. Now, join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates, New England Operations, and Ringler Radio is bringing you this edition of Ringler Radio from the annual meeting of NASTA on the lovely island of Puerto Rico, uh, the National Structured Settlement Trade Association's annual conference, and we're having a great time. Our topics cover a wide range of issues, as you all know, and they're all important to trial attorneys, defense attorneys, and claim professionals. And here at NASTA, we're covering important issues for the settlement industry as a whole. You can find every Ringler radio show on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or thelegaltalknetwork.com. Well, today's show, we're going to talk about a very interesting subject, one that all of us need to pay heed to for sure, and it's the area of ethics in litigation. And uh, fresh off the center stage here at the annual NASTA meeting is Professor John Freeman from the University of South Carolina School of Law, uh, who just gave a tremendous presentation on the whole area of ethics, and we're very happy to have uh, John here with us today. And you're from South Carolina, John. That's the home of the Gamecocks. Anyway, uh, Professor Freeman, he holds a John Campbell chair at uh, USC, and he joined the law faculty there in 1973 after receiving uh, undergraduate in law degrees from uh, the Fighting Irish at Notre Dame and also uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. And he's received numerous awards, uh, uh, too numerous for me to even talk about here, John. It sounds uh, sounds great for you and uh, we want to welcome you here. You've also testified as an expert uh, uh, witness and uh, served as trial counsel in many of these cases that involved uh, the whole subject of uh, ethics as well. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Well, you know, litigation uh, involves a number of different parties, the plaintiff attorney, the defense attorney, the judges, the clients. Uh,
2: but sometimes, so all Sometimes the insurance companies.
1: <laughs> yeah, as well. And all of these people, obviously, all these uh, entities have different roles to play within the litigation process, but are there some general ethical standards that uh, all the parties have to adhere to?
2: Well, the lawyers absolutely have to adhere to standards set by the Supreme Court of the states in which they practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be the Code of Professional Responsibility or the Rules of Professional Conduct. These days, lawyers are very much tuned into this because the disciplinary uh, processes are getting geared up in every states, including my own in South Carolina. they mm-hmm. are very active in keeping uh, people in line and, frankly, um, it's interesting, Larry, that lawyers are easily um, uh, interested in this and tuned into it even more so than law students. Law students tend to think it's a little play-acting, lawyers know it's for real. Well, I was going to ask you,
1: you know, because we've all heard the jokes about lawyers, uh, they seem to be rampant, and you're there in, in trying to teach these uh, students at South Carolina. Uh, about the concept of ethics. What do, you, what do you teach them in law school about uh, the importance of ethics and how, as they become lawyers, how they're going to deal with that?
2: First of all, it's made easier by the fact that if they don't pass the course, they don't get out of law school. That's an incentive to learn. And if they don't pass the bar exam on ethics, they don't get admitted to practice. Yeah. So those are two whips mm-hmm. uh, to keep them in line. But besides that, you try to appeal to the better side and the practical side of things. For the students, what I tell the students at the very beginning of the course is that this is a course that you can actually has practical material there think back to your property course uh, in your first year when you're talking about shifting executory uses and all these bizarre right. concepts that you, you, you didn't understand then and probably don't understand today but That's in the fertile octogenarian <laughs> rule <yeah. laughs> a friend of mine talked about the rule at shelby's place <laughs> but anyhow you, you uh, the stuff in ethics i try to make it very very useful to him because I got to tell you, day in and day out, as part of my public service, I'm helping lawyers who have got ethical problems, and or or are under attack, and uh, it's a real thing out there in the profession. Lawyers take it seriously.
1: Well, you know, I know a lot of lawyers who uh, have clients who, from time to time, want them to take actions or do things that are a little bit, uh, you know, beyond the pale and sketchy. And they're, they're sketchy to to say the least. And and. So, let's ask that question. Is a lawyer ethically bound to follow a client's wishes even if the attorney believes you know, it, may, it may not be the best course of action? There's
2: a good answer to that one. The Himmel case uh, out of uh, Illinois. Himmel is a famous case involving a lawyer who found uh, out that the prior lawyer for the client had been a crook mm-hmm. and had stolen. And he, he failed under the Illinois rules to turn that lawyer in and then himself got attacked. Wow. And one of his defenses was, I thought my client didn't want me to turn him in. I had an instruction from my client not to do it, and that gets me off the hook. And the court said, wait a minute, buddy, you have an ethical obligation to do this. The fact that your client tells you not to or doesn't want you to doesn't let you off the hook at all. The poor guy got suspended for a year.
1: Well, and deservedly so. Well, what would you say, and I know this is a broad question to ask you, but it's important to set the stage for all this uh, specific uh, information we're going to talk about in a minute, but what would you say is the most common ethical dilemma that most of the lawyers face today? There, there's a lot of things out there, but what
2: is the one that they most commonly face? A big problem today is discovery abuse and just how litigation is is handled. Um, there's very, There are very few cases where there is not some problem of foot-dragging at, at a minimum and possibly evidence-hiding uh, that it is a serious, serious problem. And, for example, there's a great lawyer in South Carolina named Michael Brickman. Michael just—he uh, won a ten billion dollar tobacco case in Illinois. Mm-hmm. It was taken away from four to two by the Illinois Supreme Court, and and that was just upheld. So here's a guy who's seen a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar judgment come and go. Comes and goes. But in in, in any case, uh, in talking to Michael about what he wants, in, in in from from a judge in a case, and this is a guy who is a class plaintiff's lawyer, uh, and very tenacious. And what he said is, I want a judge who will give me the discovery I need. He didn't say, I want a judge who's in my pocket. Right. He didn't say anything, but I want a fair shake. And and when you got lawyers craving that, and and realizing that they don't get it automatically, I think that's a problem in our profession.
1: Well, you know, discovery abuse is uh, rampant in a lot of cases where where one side hides the uh, discovery from the other and makes it so difficult for them to obtain it. Uh, and other times they parse their word, the op- obfuscation of, sure. of evidence. Uh, and I know there are a couple of cases out there where, where this has really become, uh, you know, highlighted one of them was the Honda case uh, which was uh, and the other was the the Ron Perlman case where, where there was a lot of that going I why don't you tell us about the Honda case and maybe the Perlman case give us
2: some insight into that. the Honda case I, I would encourage any of your listeners who who've got Google and want like to read to Google a book called arrogance and Accords it's only available uh, through Amazon or on the web it's not in print anymore but it's a great story about corruption, massive corruption, not well understood by most people at Honda, and a lot of it turns on discovery abuse by the people uh, who are defending Honda in that case, hiding documents, um, denying the um, blatant wrongdoing that occurred, and culminated in a grand jury being uh, convened by Stephen McAuliffe, Krista McAuliffe's husband. Up in New Hampshire. Yeah, right. Krista, yeah. being the challenger yeah. astronaut, killed, unfortunately. Her husband's a federal judge, and he sicked the federal federal authorities on Honda and brought a lot of this truth to light. It's all covered in the book. But he he smelled out and would not tolerate the, the massive corruption. And the Perlman case is, a, is
1: before, before you go to Perlman, wasn't in the Honda case, wasn't the, the subject of the case the... Uh, the subject of graft and granting dealerships. Uh, it was. Yeah, that, that was a very very uh, prevalent up there in New Hampshire. I was, well, you know, wasn't it wasn't just –
2: no. It, New Hampshire was – it was nationwide. Yeah. New, Hampshire, New Hampshire is where it came to a head. Yeah. And, f- and it came to a head because Steve McAuliffe, the, the federal prefer. judge, wouldn't stand for it, smelled a rat, and then had, had turned things over to the feds, the U.S. attorney. Mm-hmm. But um, what, what had happened is you know Honda had some corrupt uh, officials who were taking bribes for establishing dealerships and then allocating cars to those dealerships. Again, it's all covered in the book. It's a very cool book. Terrific. What about Perlman? Ron Perlman doesn't need the money because he's rich <laughs> to begin with. Exactly. Okay, he owns Revlon and he bought a company called Coleman and most people know Coleman when you say Coleman lanterns, or Coleman tents, you go Coleman, camping. Out, out, outdoor yeah. gear. Mm-hmm. He had this perfectly good company and he was induced to sell it to Sunbeam at a time when Sunbeam was going unbeknownst to him down the tubes. Morgan Stanley was the major D that presided over the deal, and he thought major that Morgan Stanley owed him an obligation to speak the truth, and basically sold him down the river. So, he sells his company instead of getting hundreds of millions of dollars in valid stock, honest you know, stock that's worth a lot. He ends up with you know shares in a bankrupt company, not worth anything, and he's lost his perfectly good Coleman operation. So he sued Morgan Stanley, offered to sell. To settle the case for $20 million. Morgan Stanley turned up their nose at it. At that. And then they pursued discovery, his lawyers from Jenner and Block, Chicago law firm, and also the Searcy firm down in Florida. Searcy with a guy named Jack Scarola doing the litigation down there. Um, and between the two of them, essentially they w- wouldn't let go, and they stalked. Morgan Stanley demanding documents they asked for emails on the deal they got 5 emails on their initial go around they said this isn't enough turns out there was many 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 documents that were concealed this is this is so bad larry that the the current issue of american lawyer or maybe the, the immediately past one has got a cover story of sunbeam on it the wow. sunbeam saga and the, and the, and normally when when lawyers come under attack or there's a big calamity in the profession, somebody says something like, "How dare the government?" Or the you know they're off base or something. The headline of this story is, um, "It's worse than you thought it was." <laughs> and and, and what telling. the ju- the judge uh, ended up punishing uh, Morgan Stanley for its discovery abuse in that case, um, defaulting them which is about the most serious sanction that you can get actually being put in default. There was a trial on damages, and the jury came back with $1.45 Billion, billion with a B. Billion with a B, where it could have been settled for $20 million with an M. Mm-hmm. And there are some lawyers at uh, Kirkland and Allison elsewhere with egg on their face, all over their face and other parts of their body as a result of this one.
1: That sounds like trouble with a T. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, somewhere I, I, I read a quote um, from one of these cases, and I thought it was very telling and apropos of our discussion today, and it was that discovery abuse can actually be relevant
2: to consciousness of guilt. Is is that, where does that come from? The judge held that Mm -hmm. down in Florida Mm -hmm. and said that this is a whole new area opening up, which which is ethics slash civil procedure slash evidence. A whole new area where you can take the wrongdoing from the people who are trying to cheat you out of uh, you know, your day in court, your evidence, your opportunity to prove your case, rivet in on their wrongdoing, prove their wrongdoing, and then have a judge let you get that admitted as proof of corruption mm-hmm. and state of mind and also, Larry, admissible on the punitive damages issue if you get that far. Mm-hmm. And I've been asked in, in a couple of cases, that's why I was in the... Um, the uh, Ford uh, F-150 case, I was in there to testify on punitive damages, basically to, to talk about how bad that behavior was and why the jury ought to ratchet up punitives on as a result of it.
1: That was the case where the door latches were coming undone?
2: Well, yeah. The doors would open mm-hmm. without the latch breaking, which is a bad thing in a car or a truck. Yeah, I would say truck. so. Yeah,
1: I would Out say so. Out you go. Exactly. Well, you know, you've been involved in so many of these kinds of cases. Uh, that's one of the great reasons I'm, I'm happy you're on the show today. Uh, let's let's talk about the area of, uh, that we're all involved in, in the litigation, and the the civil litigation that we're we're basically involved in, and. and that's the issue of confidentiality agreements. We're always involved at the end of cases with the, the desire for confidentiality by one side or the other, and sometimes it's uh, somewhat onerous and they're looking for dollars to be paid for it. And how, how does all that wrap around the whole ethical consideration?
2: I think it's an ethics issue for this reason, or it can be. I understand why people Want to keep certain materials confidential, and frankly, I don't. I don't object to that at all. Depending on what the material is, for example, if you got a court file, and it has tax, personal tax returns in there, mm-hmm. what, 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 why should that be public information? Mm-hmm. And if it's got personal, um, private financial information where people can see your credit card numbers and all that, why, why should that be in the public domain? It shouldn't be. I mm-hmm. think most people would agree on that, but. We see cases involving product liability, uh, something like Benlate, uh, which is a uh, fungicide that was put on plants, um, pollution cases. We see uh, there's been a thing over DuPont and it's Teflon, for example, mm-hmm. where there's health-related implications. Mm-hmm. where there's health-related implications and you've got some cover-up and, and an agreement where, for example, you're the guy who's figured out that this product is carcinogenic. Nobody else has been able to open that, crack that safe, but you figured it out. And the company, your case, based on injuries, may be worth a million dollars. The company comes and says, here, here's a deal, $10 Okay. million. Don't say anything about it. Don't don't say anything. Give us your file. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're never taking another one of these cases again. Your experts are never testifying again. It never happened. Mm-hmm. That has enormous public policy implications, and a, and a confidentiality agreement under those circumstances, I would suggest, smacks of obstruction of justice, smacks of cover up, mm-hmm. smacks of violation of public policy, and you get the right judge, it ain't going to stand. Well, you know,
1: most of the cases that we're involved in, fortunately, don't have those ramifications, but there is always the uh, the subject of publicity. You know, a lot of a lot of. Companies, let's say hospitals or doctors that are sued—they don't want the publicity out there. So there's a lot of that confidentiality. And I know it—it's
2: the balancing act. You could of argue ethics. two, two mm-hmm. sides of that because, uh, for lawyers, um, lawyers don't like uh, that kind of uh, negative publicity either. But some people would argue that the public deserves to, to, to know, know about that. The right kind of to thing.
1: know. Yeah, it's a big—it's a big dilemma. You know, another area where uh, I think ethics obviously plays a part is. When companies hire accounting firms, for example, to kind of take, you know, take stock of where they are, what their numbers look like, and then hide behind some of those accounting uh, you know, statements to to justify their actions, and I, I know all the the big loud cases that are out there, the Enrons, and, and a lot of those cases, accounting firms were very very heavily involved in that. How, how does the ethical consideration of hiring an accounting firm and then, you know, the accounting firm signing off on the on the documents and on the on the on the financials? Uh, then coming back, to the, the, you know, the roost is, is is there, and all the the chickens are running around. What happens with that?
2: Well, the the accountants, I, I you know, I was trained as an accountant at Notre Dame, and actually worked for an accounting firm for a while. And frankly, um, there are a lot of wonderful, just like lawyers, any any type of uh, profession. There are a lot of good accountants out there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what we saw in the '90s was the big accounting firms weren't happy just being auditors. Uh, just being accountants. They decided that they wanted to sell products. Yeah. And and Larry, for example, um, in, auditing is not tremendously lucrative for a big accounting firm as a, as a field of practice. Auditing is not. So how do you make your big money? You make your big money by selling management services on the side to the audit client. Well, in Enron, for example, they're paying something like $50 million a year to Arthur Anderson. hmm a lot of it being for these management services, which is non bid work, which mm-hmm. is to say, like license to steal extremely lucrative work and and then your independence is compromised, your integrity is compromised, and your ability to stand up and say we we will not allow that is compromised, and accountants uh, got slapped silly, frankly um, and Arthur Anderson is out of business k p m g has settled with the government for four hundred and fifty million dollars, that's mm-hmm. 450 million, I'm sorry's. What yeah. law firms ever paid that kind of money? Exactly, exactly. Well,
1: you know, one of the things that most of America sat and watched on television, uh, we saw those tobacco executives come before Congress, raise their right hands and say that, you know, uh, you know cigarettes are no more, you know, unsafe as, you know, gummy bears or mm-hmm. candy. And yet there were documents, uh, many of them talking about the, uh, the you know, the terrible Addiction, addictive qualities of cigarettes, et cetera, and some of the other bad, bad issues. You know, you talk about ethics. I mean, isn't that the the, the, the poster child for unethical conduct?
2: For unethical conduct by the executives, and no. in fact, no. perjurious conduct or criminal conduct. The amazing thing is that nobody's gone to prison hmm. over that one. But uh, you know, just think about think about this society. We have some strange values. A, a child falls down a well. Mm-hmm. Gets trapped. We've all seen this. Kind of comes up every every ten years or so. Some child gets bottom of a twenty foot well, and uh, you know all the network twenty four hour coverage. And and they're there to get Sarah or whatever Mm -hmm. out of the well because because we so revere human life that you know everybody stopped because of this. Then you have four hundred fifty thousand people, four hundred fifty thousand people a year dying for smoking cigarettes, and it's ho hum, and 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 nothing is done. Uh, about the companies that are are uh, causing this. And frankly, and, and then they get so brazen, as you say, they walk into Congress and hold up their hands and say it's not addictive and it's not carcinogenic. And let me say this. I'm a lawyer and I'm proud of it. Mm-hmm. God bless the trial lawyers who brought that rogue industry to heel. Congress didn't have the guts to do it. The state legislatures didn't have the guts to do it. Nobody had the guts to do it except the trial lawyers to walk in there and tee it up.
1: And, you know, the whole issue of contingency fees, I mean, without without that kind of a contingency arrangement, a lot of, who, who could who could afford to do that? I mean, well, it was a very interesting it, point, it, isn't
2: it? Let me mention that what what that grew out of is that is the asbestos cases because mm-hmm. there are lawyers who had taken those cases, again, where the companies denied that there's any problem. Now, sure. Congress is talking about legislation to set aside $100 billion to deal with the asbestos problem. Twenty years ago, the company said, what problem? What problem, exactly. Um, but the lawyers set aside at, at the Ness firm $5 bucks. Terry Richardson at, at the firm told me, he said, um, that we decided we're going to set aside that money. If we lose it all, going after tobacco, so be it. But it's in the public interest, and here we come.
1: Well, let's, let's try to get a little closer to the structured settlement industry in terms of... Uh the kinds of ethical considerations that we deal with, uh, one of those issues is whether or not it's it 's an ethical you know consideration for a lawyer to adequately explain uh, what a structured settlement is to their client so as to avoid this this subject that we sometimes call up as buyer 's remorse later on. Right. I had a case where uh, uh, it was a spinal cord injury and and the claimant's brother-in-law or friend was a financial guy, and they wanted cash. They wouldn't agree to do a tax-free structured settlement, so even though there was a tremendous age rating and the rate of return was terrific and, and the long-term you know, anti-dissipation factors were there for that individual. And I asked his lawyer, I said, did you you sure he understands adequately the tax-free nature of the structure and, and what it's all about and how important it is and beneficial to him? And he said, well, I think he does. And I said to him, you know, you, you better get that in writing because I think someday that may come back to haunt you. Is there that ethical consideration on the part of a lawyer to make sure the client fully understands what's happening uh, to avoid that kind of a
2: problem? Absolutely, Larry. I'm seeing this more and more. I think it's a going to be increasingly common type of malpractice where the client says, I, I settled, I did not get the optimum settlement. My lawyer did not tell me about tax ramifications. My lawyer did not tell me about these options. And, and, and your job as a lawyer isn't just to tee up a defendant and bring me to the table. You know, These days you've got to finish the job. You've got to close the deal and closing the deal means doing it in a way that is optimum for the client and if it's structure, you've got to present that. Or it, that, that may be the optimum way, and you mm-hmm. may believe in it. And the client may not want that, mm-hmm. okay? And the client rejects it after full disclosure. Then it's on the client. But if it is optimum and it was never presented, you got yourself a malpractice problem.
1: Well, it's not so much that oftentimes it wasn't presented. It was that after the fact, later on, the client will say it wasn't pre- presented. It, they'll, they'll make Get that claim. Get it in writing. Get it in writing you're, is my point.
2: What I tell my students, if mm-hmm. it's oral, it didn't happen.
1: <laughs> And you know what? Uh, we do a lot of emailing today, and a lot of you know, to to replace what used to be written communications. And, and isn't that one other area where, where ethical considerations are coming into into play? Where where emails uh, we're so casual with our emails that they're getting us into trouble.
2: Well, it's huge. Um, Elliot Spitzer made a living off emails when he went after the IPO spinning because he could get the companies who are recommending uh, stocks and get into their emails where they're doing anything but recommending the stocks they are using great profanity to just dis- be dismissive toward the very stocks that they're, that they're trying exactly, to sell. Exactly. And exactly. people are, email and e-discovery is a, is a great area. I just want to mention this, e-discoverylaw.com, a fabulous website if you're interested in issues relating to dis- discovery, e Tremendous. Well,
1: we've dealt with a lot of the ethical issues here with you today, John, uh, you're a tremendous uh, asset to the to the industry, and in, in trying to help us make sure we're on the straight and narrow, and. Uh we commend what you do down at South Carolina with those students and keeping them, uh, bringing them out uh, with ethical, uh, with an ethical background. Hopefully that'll the future will be a lot brighter for all of us. Well, that'll do it for this edition of Ringler Radio, broadcasting again live from NASTA's annual meeting in Puerto Rico. And I want to again thank Professor John Freeman from the University of South Carolina School of Law for being with me here today. John, if someone wanted to contact you, how would they do that?
2: Thanks. Um, John Freeman is at University of South Carolina Law School, and let me give my email, John F at law.law.se.edu. And my office number, if you want to call me, I'm glad sure. to talk to you, 803 777
1: 7224. Well, that's great. I'm Larry Cohen from Ringler. You can contact me at 978 974 9922. Again, listen to our radio shows on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. And in the
0: meantime, go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity.